Hello and welcome to the podcast. So this is part two of my interview with John Titchen, which took place earlier in the year. Apologies for getting this out to you so late. COVID changed a lot of things and um, has delayed this, but nevertheless, it's here now. In this part of the conversation, we discuss habitual acts of violence, as well as John's sim days or simulation days. I think it's going to be a real good insight into two of the core things John is well known for. So without further ado, um, I give you part two of my conversation with John Titchen. I came across your work. I came across work you'd published in relation to habitual acts of violence. And I came across a few other models as well. So if you just want to talk about habitual acts of violence model, and how that maybe differs to some of the other models out there, and why you use this one. To begin with, HAOV is is not my term. When I first started looking into violence and violent attacks, I was just using the term violent attacks, and you know I was looking for what I could in various books, in Home Office statistics, in the British Crime Survey as it was then. The HAOV term, as I understand it, comes from Rick Clark, who is the head of the Edenkakai organization. And I got involved with Rick Clark round about 2001 through another Shotgun friend. And Rick had written a little bit about habitual acts of violence and had chosen the term because of its, its breadth. And then because I was going to seminars with Rick when he was in the UK. I also met Bill Berger, who lives fairly local to me. Bill's the author of Five Years, One Catter. And Bill also wrote a little bit about habitual acts of violence. And I adopted the the term. I would see HAOV, habitual acts of violence, as less of a model and more of an umbrella term because it embraces all the primate behaviours you associate with aggression and violence. So the primate posturing that occurs before, during or after uh, aggressive events, the swearing, the body language, the actual physical acts of violence, whether armed or unarmed themselves. And for me, it's been a useful descriptor. And I adopted it from Rick Clark's use. And I've, I've stuck with it. I think it's a very, very simple term. I, I don't think it, uh, it's overly you know, complicated. It does exactly what it says on the tin. So if I got that right then, John, so the habitual acts of violence, not only does that cover like the physical attacks, but you're also looking at like the pre-fight behaviours and some of the you know, behaviours and postures people might do before they carry out the physical assault. Absolutely. Now, I would say that in my normal training, you'll see a bit more of those pre-fight behaviours, particularly in my scenario training, in my sim days. But when it comes to doing cater application, the fact is, once you're looking at cater, we're looking at physical drills. And so in the context of cater application, HAOV tends to be the common physical attacks so generally speaking, we're looking at pushes, we're looking at haymakers, and then we're looking at things that might follow. 
So a haymaker that fails can go into a barge, it can go into a boxer's hug, it can go into a headlock of some sort. The bitch lacks of violence don't tend to stand on their own. Obviously, you know, people get lucky. They throw one punch, a person is knocked out if they're caught unawares. But what tends to happen is that whoever's attacking you will have an agenda. It might be that they're just trying to establish dominance, in which case one hit could be enough. But on the other hand, they might be genuinely trying to hurt you. And if something fails, if you manage to shield against a haymaker, it's going to be followed by grabbing other haymakers, pushing, pulling, tackles, all these different failure cascades behaviour that will continue the fight by any means for the other person. So the way you're structuring your drills then and what you prioritise here is it's not that you look at like a list of physical attacks and then create responses to them. It, it's more a case that you focus on the, the more common attacks and then what leads from there. And then, like you said, a lovely phrase, a failure cascade. When one thing doesn't go right, you then lead on to the different options and then move down that way. Yes. I, I think it's, it's worthwhile saying that the list method does have a certain validity, but you have to take into account the, the nature of the beast and the context of physical violence and that it tends not to be just one punch and a headlock doesn't you know magically appear it comes from somewhere and so as you build up your idea of your responses to violent acts you have to say how did i get here where did this come from what is the context of this and that that's essentially where failure cascades come from because a a headlock doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of you perhaps successfully not getting hit in the face by the punch, but then being unsuccessful or too slow in your follow-through to deter another form of attack. So various positions that you will find either in kata or, or just in basic training drills tend to be the failure cascade the punch goes into the tackle that may go into ground and pound rather than any kind of skilled attempt to pin someone on the ground the the punch might go into a headlock not because the person necessarily wants to put you in a headlock but actually wrapping your arm around someone is a very very instinctive behavior i've seen ladies in their 50s do it in training who've had no martial arts training whatsoever they've just gone into that type of grappling uh, and holding on to people and things like the boxer's hug you don't have to be a boxer to do a boxer's hug it's, 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 a, it's a breathing moment it's a mid-combative moment where something has failed and there's a brief pause where the person is slumped on you before they either pull back for another punch push you for another punch drive down into a tackle, drive upwards into a barge, attempt to headlock you, mm. attempt to headbutt you, any one of those different things. I think it's Jamie Club who calls that like primal grappling. And I think he said if you've if you got you know, older ladies in your class who've had no experience of doing it instinctively, there's some value there to this instinctive like primal behavior which is encoded in us. I do want to touch on something you mentioned regarding the cater applications and your, your cater training. You said that's that's heavily influenced on, on the physical side of the habitual acts of violence. And I agree with you there, because for me, cat is like the infight. That's what you use when you are fighting. 
But you also mentioned, like we said, the other pre-fight behaviors, the acts of violence before it gets physical. And you mentioned that you see a lot more of that on your simulation days or sim days. So if you just want to talk a bit about what, what those sim days are and where did the idea come from for starting those? Well, the idea came to me once I asked myself the question, well, how do I test what I'm doing? Because if you're, if you're training for a competition, there's a very, very simple test of what you're doing. And that's that you, whether at professional level or, or club level or just within your own club itself, you, you have a set of rules and you, you work to them. But if you are focusing your training on self-defense, then the, the competition, as it were, is a, a violent event. It's not sensible to go out and provoke <laughs> or seek out confrontation. It's not legal to go out and provoke and seek uh, confrontation. So what I wanted was a way of testing what I was doing. And I invested in about 2005 in, in some chess cards and MMA-type gloves. And then 2006, I started using Blau Tactical Systems, high-gear suits, and I think it was 2007 that I ran my first sim day uh, with a mixture of my students and some Taekwondo students from the Nottingham area. And it was quite a limited event because even though I had four full sets of kit, that really only allowed us to do one-on-ones, two-on-twos, three-on-ones. And what I wanted to do was to find a format where we could acclimatise students both to impact in training and violent language, aggressive behaviours and attacks. And then over time, we've expanded that to pose more challenging scenarios where students can essentially face their own red lines, red lines that they may not know they have about would they go and help someone, would they intervene or not, uh, and what are the implications of intervening to help someone or not. So what I tend to do in my sim days is we have contact acclimatization phases and verbal abuse acclimatization phases to get people onto the, the same page. And also for me as an instructor to look at people's capabilities both in receiving contact and in terms of behaviours as to what type of role player they can be whether they can accurately replicate an assault have they got the physical capability to batter someone to in that case distinguishing between assault and battery and then we run a range of scenarios and the scenarios change really according to the people that i've got in on the day when i first started running them i had a lot of 17, 18 year olds coming in with people in their 20s and 30s. And we did a lot of club and bar based uh, scenarios, as well as um, bus stop type scenarios and indoor car park type scenarios. And the aim is really to, to run an event for people to see how they behave. It's a chance for me to observe behaviors as well. There's an element of training and an element of testing. There's training in terms of the more you receive this type of event, the better equipped you are to access your skill set. And I've seen people who are very, very good martial artists and have been very, very good competitors 
not do so well at this time of type of event. Whereas there have been people who perhaps have not been so highly ranked in the martial arts, but had more practical experience of physical contact or professional experience of physical contact who have done much better because they're used to the environment uh, and the simulated environment. But we also have a strong debrief element to what we do. So everything we do is debrief. Everything is filmed and we go through frame by frame. We ask the questions, what are you thinking here? What else could you have done? What would have happened if? And we look at the, the ethical repercussions of behaviour and we look at the legal repercussions of behaviour because we want people to question what they're doing, how they behaved, to give them essentially a, a sort of a template for if the event happens in real life, they've already been there, they've already asked questions of themselves, the act, don't act sort of questions of themselves in the safe environment of training. Now, it's not real. There are compromises. There are always going to be compromises when you're replicating violent events. Any form of martial arts training has to have compromises. But we get a lot out of it. There's certainly a lot of adrenaline involved. And the days themselves, they last about six hours. I would say in that time, there's probably only a maximum of 20 minutes physical activity and the rest of it is briefing and debriefing and analysis and people are shattered by the end of the day they're shattered from the hormonal roller coaster of the adrenaline spikes that can happen in these events it's something that i've made a syllabus requirement for my own students so once students are going for third pew onwards I expect them to do a, a, a sim day for each grade, and I expect my, my Dan grades to do a sim day at least once a year. And a lot of people love them. A lot of people find them a bit like going on a roller coaster where they go, oh, this is, this is a great idea. Yes, I want to do this. And then they spend quite a bit of time going, oh, God, why, why have I agreed to do this? Why have I agreed to do this? Why have I agreed to do this? And then the scenario starts, and a scenario does not last very, very long. And it's a bit like that time on a roller coaster where they're just going, ah! and then afterwards, they go, whoa, whoa, that was great. That was great. Let's do it again. Because the, the violent events themselves, the scenario themselves, sometimes you might get a scenario that drags out for four or five minutes with a lot of verbal, a lot of posturing, um, a lot of sounding out, a lot of positioning. And I do throw in double blinds for people. It's one of the nasty things that I do where they think they might be approaching someone as themselves with a reasonable complaint uh, over something uh, to see how the other person behaves. But I've set them up to be approached by somebody else just to get their brain out of sync a little bit. But the while the scenario could go on for three, four minutes, most of the time, particularly in the small number scenarios, the, the actual fight part of it, the conflict part of it, is done and dusted, even when people lose track of what they're doing and perhaps don't necessarily go down when they should go down. Even when that happens, these things tend to go on for a maximum of about two seconds. I think the longest one I've ever seen go on for has been about 20 seconds. That involved about eight different people all fighting at the same time. They aren't long events but they really physically take it out of you. Um, we did once do a, 
a padlock comparison with Graham Palmer's group from Norfolk Practical Karate, a very, very good group. And they'd done some testing where they were trying to simulate adrenaline release through exercise. And they were doing all sorts of padlock combinations and so forth, and then having to try and put in a, a combination on a padlock to see how it affected their motor skills. And we got similar results from a one-minute scenario where actually only three seconds had been violence and activity as they were getting from five minutes of sustained exercise. Same day as you've just described, that's actually something I always wanted to get to one now. I'm on record of saying I will get there eventually. Just logistically, it, it's been difficult because of my own schedules, unfortunately, over the last couple of years. But something I definitely want to do. Okay then, so, so John, I, I think we're just hitting about the hour mark now, so we're going to have to wrap this up. People want to check out your books and events you've got coming up. I know throughout this podcast, by the way, we mentioned the, you know, the great Bill Berger from Five Years Ron Catter and Graham Palmer a few minutes ago. And I, I believe, if I'm correct in saying is we're trying to get together, myself, you, Bill and Graham, next year yes, for, for an event. For an event on the 25th of April in Birmingham. Location as yet to be determined because most leisure centres are currently shut for the COVID-19 lockdown so we haven't been able to have good communications with the leisure centres but it's not as if you can't find a leisure centre in a place like Birmingham and it's a great central location. We're looking at doing a, a single day's training on intelligent karate taking all our different approaches and we think it's it's going to be a day to remember for the people that go. As for myself, my website is titchen.com. It's got links to my YouTube channel. It's got links to my Facebook. It's got links to Amazon where you can purchase uh, books. I've got a new book coming out in the very, very near future, which is related to Kata and going beyond Kata and using Kata better. Why do Kata? And that, I hope, will be out in June 2020. Which won't be... <laughs> that might be before the podcast, knowing my um, schedule with editing these things. But I'll put the link to all your social media and your website in the notes to the podcast as well. So John, it's been great. Thank you. Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure.